0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor, back in Berlin, as it happens. Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany and everything that he's up to over there, which is a lot as it happens. But first, we're going to be focusing on the Southern Hemisphere. And the data point there is 1.6 trillion. That is the GDP of Brazil. That makes it the largest economy in South America. And it's also a country that's about to have a new president elected with just over 50% of the vote.
1: Brazil's new president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, was met with cheers from his supporters in his stunning defeat of incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. He's known for his role in building the country's social welfare program as much as he's known for his scandals. He was convicted on corruption and money laundering charges in 2017, spending 19 months in prison before his conviction was overruled.
0: I called him a new president, but he's been president of Brazil before from 2003 to 2010. And so, yeah, looking ahead, how is Lula going to be running South America's biggest economy? We can look to the past for some answers, but yeah, figured we'd uh, also ask Adam. So wanted to start by talking about Lula's working class background. I mean, just one fact among others is that he didn't learn to read until he was 10. So, Adam, I'm curious, what sort of pathways to power does Brazil Provide to its underprivileged. What kind of lessons does Lula's kind of uh, background offer here?
2: It's a really extraordinary story because he grew up. He he grew up not just I mean underprivileged. He grew up downright poor. Like he's were, uh, you know, a mum that raised him. They were a migrant family that came down from the from the north that was hit by droughts and 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 lived rough essentially. in 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 the city, um, lived in improvised like the back of a bar. With in, like you we know, with with I think at one point he was living in an apartment mm. with twenty seven people as a child. So I mean, a true story of extraordinary mobility from the very very bottom of of the social hierarchy to the top. And in Brazil, that's a very very long way, right? I mean, Brazil is a byword for inequality. It's one of the most it's societies with the most extreme inequality in the world. Um, and not, therefore, a society characterised by high rates of social mobility normally um, at all. And yet, in another way, Bra- Brazil's story, and Lula is very deeply personally identified with that, is, since the late 90s onwards anyway, is one if not of, as it were, individual social mobility, but of collective mobility, in the sense that the economic growth that has happened in Brazil since the 90s has been such that it transformed the structure of Brazilian society, reshuffled it, and made a new Brazilian middle class. And though Lula starts out as a socialist, as an extraordinarily courageous uh, mobilizer of auto workers in the Brazilian industrial centers against the military dictatorship, so a true working class um, militant. He becomes a figure uh, associated with the project, really, of the emergence of a giant Brazilian middle class. And Brazil, being an extremely sophisticated society with an elaborate intellectual uh, world, has produced a kind of incredible real-time debate about its own transformation. So it centers on this notion of the class C. Um, which, in the in the most commonly used A through D hierarchization of social classes in in Brazil, is the lower middle class. You might say so. This is composed of teachers, managers, mechanics, electricians, nurses, skilled working class, and routine uh, salaried uh, uh, white collar work. And uh, from the early 2000s onwards, when when Lula took office, an incredible debate emerges in Brazil about the transformation of Brazil into a middle-class society. Um, And so by 2008, an important um, uh, sociological study uh, basically declared um, that Brazil had transitioned to being, this is Marcelo Neri's work, transitioned to being a majority middle-class society. So this Group C, which... Lula, as it were, turns himself into, by way of becoming a skilled a skilled, uh, skilled auto worker and then a union organiser, comes to stand for the new Brazil that, that Lula was making. I mean, don't exaggerate this. There was, in fact, a federal government commission appointed in 2014 huh. for the definition of the middle class in Brazil. Um, this is after Lula had left power, but it's still under his successor, Um, And and kind of encapsulates the way in which his drama, his personal drama, has in a sense become a kind of national story of collective uplift. Of course, this is hugely contentious, wildly debated, how true it is, whether it's continuing. But um, it's really an amazing way in which an individual biography and the political project of a party and the set of economic and social policies can translate into the sociological redefinition of a country's identity.
0: Strikes me that it would be useful for the United States to have such a commission. We're always sort of debating what the middle class is and how... Wouldn't it? It would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem is, of course, the results will be pretty hard to
2: swallow because what it would expose is that the income and wealth inequalities of the United States are such that it doesn't actually make sense to describe the vast majority of people is belonging to the middle class. Anyway, in any
0: real sense. I have trouble picturing it ending the debate somehow, given the state of American politics. But um, but back to Brazil. As I mentioned, Lula has been president before. He served a, a full two terms. And so what can we say about his stint as an economic policymaker? How successful was he? Uh, I mean, when he was in office, I know that commodity prices and Brazil does sell uh, plenty of Commodities on international markets, those prices were very high. Did that just basically make it easy for him? Allowed him to redistribute oil profits? Is that just what his policy making amounted to? It wasn't just oil. I mean, it's agricultural
2: products, in some sense, is the most dramatic element of the Brazilian story, though oil was, as it were, the icing on the cake. And yeah, I think it's fair to say probably that you would have have to have been astonishingly incompetent not to have presided over an economic boom in Brazil in the early 2000s, because there's the great China story, the great surge of global emerging market growth, which generates huge demand for raw materials and huge demand for, for foodstuffs, food that then goes into the animal feed chain, for instance um and brazil benefits from this and it's worth just driving home the point that you started with the 1.6 trillion you know this doesn't just make brazil the biggest economy in south america Mm. it makes it overwhelmingly the biggest economy in south america i mean i think from the north we look down and sort of say well brazil argentina you know we don't really have a sense of the proportion here brazil's economy is four times larger than that of argentina it is uh, five times larger than that of Colombia and Chile which are the other two big South American economies it is 25 percent larger than the economy of Mexico um, uh, which benefits of course um, from its you know it's it's being America's immediate neighbor so Brazil is is absolutely the giant in the room one of the problems with devising Latin American and South American economic policy is it's so asymmetric. Um, so it's quite difficult to do European style solutions for South America because it's as though Germany, you know, was 70 percent of the European Union economy. Mm. I mean, you might as well just bolt the other bits on and have done with it. Right. And so that obviously that doesn't work in the South American context. So, no, Brazil is is globally Relevant. It's a huge piece of the puzzle, which is why everyone should pay attention to Brazilian news because it's it's a really it's a global story. But the big difference is social policy. What what Lula really is is a pioneer, and his administrations uh, are pioneers of comprehensive social policy, such that. This time around, Brazilian growth actually did benefit the majority of the population. That's the achievement. And poverty fell by about 40% in this, in this period, and rates of uh, primary school enrollment surged so that the majority of the Brazilian population now at least has elementary uh, education. Um, electrification was brought to the vast majority uh, of the population. Um, so, you know, there's a huge transformation of Brazilian society which consists precisely in the success of the... Um, of the of the Lula government are uh, in in translating that money down. It isn't so much trickle down economics as opening the taps. You know, very deliberately channeling uh, the resource flow down.
0: Just so I can understand the the um, form that took. So that took the form of investments in schools, electrification, other infrastructure, but also cash transfers to the poor. Yes, conditional cash
2: transfers. So Brazil is one of the pioneers of the new model of welfare. Um, in the Brazilian case, it's called the Bolsa Familia and, um, it's a cash transfer centered on families, centered on mothers, crucially, and is conditional on the kids attending school and doing basic medical checkups. So the idea is to empower women, um, in households to, um, with the resources of the state and to tie the mothers and their children into education and the health system so as to ensure that you get maximum human capital payoff from this. Um, and so that's the idea, and it's, it's a highly effective mechanism uh, of welfare distribution.
0: Yeah, now looking ahead, it seems that Lula didn't have a whole bunch of specific promises of policies he wanted to enact in a new term. The one thing that he did stipulate very clearly is that he's promising to reverse the deforestation of the Amazon region that deforestation is something that flourished under his predecessor Bolsonaro. Now, in direct terms, that would seem to represent a kind of diminishment of a national business, the timber business, and land development, I guess, of the Amazon region. But from what I can tell, Lula's promise has also been treated as a kind of potential economic boon, from what I can tell from the financial press. So what is the what is the connection there between stopping deforestation and reaping financial benefits?
2: Yeah, it's a huge challenge because um, the agribusiness in Brazil um, has grown spectacularly since the 1990s. It now accounts for 28% of the economy. So rather than becoming less rural and less agricultural as Brazil developed in the 21st century, it's become more agrarian. Um, Whereas uh, manufacturing, which um, uh, used to account for 26% of the economy in the 1990s, when Brazil was still a model, if you like, of national industrialization, the car factories in which Lula cut his teeth and became an organizer, many of those have shut down and manufacturing has slid from being 26% of the Brazilian economy to being 10% of the Brazilian economy now. The thing in between that makes up between agriculture and industry is services, which like everywhere else in the world, accounts now for the majority of the Brazilian economy. So this challenge to the primacy of agriculture is a huge challenge. This is a specific learning on the part of the South American uh, left, which is thinking back on their experience of the early 2000s when there was the so-called pink tide and a bunch of left-wing governments were swept into power. The the self-reflection, the critical self-reflection is that they all basically piggybacked on the commodities, agro uh, commodities boom of the early 2000s. And this didn't lead to the transformation of society and, of course, produces collateral damage in the form of environmental damage. And so the challenge that the Lula team are taking on, and, and it is a huge challenge, as you say, is to devise a new model, if you like, beyond the old nationalist industrialization model of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and beyond the commodity-driven agricultural model that has become to dominate since the 1990s under the influence of, shall we call it, China demand, uh, and the vast majority of Brazil's agricultural exports do now go to China, not to Europe or the United States. But to beyond those two models, to find a new model, and this is where this green vision comes in, and it's complex and not really fully worked out yet. It's a kind of Green New Deal vision for Brazil, but... The aim of the game is essentially to develop uh, natural resources as resources um, and crucially to make Brazil into a pioneer of various types of clean energy. But it's a question mark. It's a real question mark because Lula comes out of the old industrial model, is challenging now the extractivismo model that he himself benefited from when he was last in office. And really what this new vision is going to look like, thats it's a bit of a blank page.
0: Is the idea here also that international financial investors, financial markets would, are on board for, for this kind of big shift? I mean the, And I guess by the same token, extractivism is something that international financial markets maybe are a little more wary of in our era of climate change and, and, and all that.
2: Yes, I mean, absolutely. So, so I mean, and there's no doubt at all that, that Brazil under Bolsonaro paid a price mm. for his aggressive culture wars, Trumpist kind of rejection of, you know, the the bon ton, the, the good tone of, of global finance. Um, you know, in practice, Brazil was still an attractive place for people to invest, so they did. Um, but... Um, I think the idea is indeed that a compromise could, as it were, be worked out between what is in certain respects still quite a leftist politics in Brazil and, you know, bien pensant global capital, which is looking for green capitalism basically. And so um, Brazil could potentially be a laboratory for a, you know, an agrarian version of a green green capitalist future.
0: Yeah, that brings me to my last question, which is, as you're pointing out, Lula does seem to have a firmer commitment to democracy than his predecessor, Bolsonaro. But his views on foreign policy aren't necessarily more congenial to priorities right now in Washington or Europe, for that matter. Um, You know, he's expressed views on the war in Ukraine that suggest Ukraine may share responsibility for the war there, which is in contradiction to the official views elsewhere in the West. So How does his worldview hang together altogether? I mean, what is the connection between his domestic economic views and his his foreign policy ideas?
2: Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't overly exoticize this, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is that governments representing more than half of the world's population do not accept, you know, what what you just Mm. quite reasonably described as the official Western view. They don't. Like, the vast majority... The majority of people around the world are represented by governments mm. which have taken a studiedly neutral, if not overtly skeptical, view of this, right? So he's in no way exceptional. In fact, he's pretty typical of the BRICS, right? If you think about it, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, like obviously none of them are straightforwardly aligned. And they know, and quite self-confidently know, they represent the majority of humanity. Um so and and Lula himself has history I mean he's a he's a he's a South American leftist he he risked his his life um in the politics of the 1960s and the 1970s opposing a military dictatorship that was backed by the United States um he was a proud member of BRICS as the BRICS coalition as it emerged he um, has met regularly with Vladimir Putin Putin um you know actually upgraded the BRICS. I mean, hmm. of course, on Putin's part, um, I don't know, with, with, with clear strategic intent and Brazil was willing to take them up on that. Um, uh, Lula and his foreign policy team uh, always pushed the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations as opposed to the OAS, uh, the Organization of American States, I guess, right, which is more North American dominated and they were looking for a uh, South American alternative. And so yes, it's quite. We you have to recognise that the that uh, the politics of 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 much of um, the world is sceptical towards these naturalised, apparently self-evident to us claims about how this war started. I don't know. I don't for a second. I mean, we're clear. Like Russia invaded Ukraine. It's a fundamental breach of international law. But. Um, that per se doesn't necessarily shift somebody like Lula into a position of you know, wanting to openly espouse a line which will place him in alignment with the United States. That for him, this idea, the rhetoric of the West and so on, is an albatross um, around. He'd probably be more congenial to the question of you know, lining up behind Ukraine if, if it wasn't posed in the context of Ukraine's NATO membership, EU membership and so on, which is clearly a geopolitical alignment with which... Somebody in from his politics is profoundly uncomfortable, absolutely, and there's no that that's that's part of the history
0: here. So yeah, it sounds like there are some uh, reasons to expect some tensions in dealing with uh, Lula government, but yeah, there's no necessary inconsistency there. If anything, I should have could could equally ask about how uh, the Western worldview hangs together. I'm sure, and I guess on that note, we'll stop here for a break and come back to talk about one of those Western countries, Germany. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is hes great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, I, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and and, and and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, Maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And That is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we are back. The next data point is 330, that is the number of days since Olaf Scholz has been Chancellor of Germany. Like his predecessor Angela Merkel, Scholz is said to be calm and pragmatic. He came to office about a year ago, as it happens, with a bit of fanfare. He was leading a, an unprecedented new coalition government. in Germany. Olaf Scholz was a lawyer specialized in labor and employment law, and he became a member of the Social Democrat SPD in the 1970s. And um, a bunch of plans. He was going to transform Germany into a more progressive, more climate-friendly country. We even devoted a whole podcast to Scholz. It was one of our first when we started this podcast a year ago. A lot's obviously happened since then. A war in Eastern Europe, one that's plunged the continent into an energy crisis and just a more general global economic crisis, including inflation that's made it harder for all governments to concentrate on their spending priorities. So as we're recording this, Olaf Scholz just landed in China for his first visit there as German chancellor. Adam, I wanted to ask if Germany... Is in fact economically dependent on China in a fundamental way,
2: yeah this is a really a fascinating case of sort of
0: um shall we call it like the discourse right because
2: uh once upon a time, say fifteen years ago, Germany's exports in success in China would have been celebrated as like look germany it's the one western country that can export to China amazing uh kudos to the Germans you know export world champions. And now, in the last couple of years, and really very vociferously in the last uh, the last year or so, since, especially since Merkel departed the scene, um, it's become this real issue for the Germans. And the question of whether Germany is dependent on China is 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 aligned with the question of whether Germany is dependent on Russia. And there's certainly a camp of opinion, notably in much of the anglophone media, which sees the entire German quote unquote model as being characterized by economic success dependent on unsavory, unprincipled, detente era, turn a blind eye, you know, commercial relationships with the likes of Putin and Xi, right? So that's, that's kind of the framing of this question because it's all over the place. I can't believe the amount of coverage that Schultz's visit to China has received in the Western press under the sign of this question. And it's fascinating how quickly this pivoted. Well, the numbers are are significant but not really confirming this basic idea. So especially if you look at the macroeconomic level, if you look at trade exports as a share of German GDP and ask yourself what is the share of China, it's in the order of 3% maximum, right? So the boost to the German economy from selling things to China is about somewhere between 25 and 3%. So it's either one in 40 euros or one in 33 euros that circulate in the German economy ultimately could be traced back to selling something to China. Now, that's actually remarkable by global standards, right? For the United States, it's a fraction of that. For the EU as a whole, it's about 1.5% because the EU is altogether more, more successful at selling things to China than the United States is The next question an economist asks is, Okay, is that static or is it moved? Is it increased or decreased? Because in terms of driving economic growth, it's the change that matters, not the level. And the surprising thing is that since the... 2012 13 14 period that share has been relatively constant in other words there are a bunch of german businesses that do well out of trade with china but china trade has not been driving a surge in economic growth when that happened is really from the late 1990s to the early 2000s and as china opened up whereas the united states was suffering this you know the famous the infamous china shock Germany suffered the China shock too, but it was offset in the German case by a China miracle. In other words, trade with China as a share of German GDP went from you know, negligible levels, 0.5% of GDP, to a positive boost item of 25 to 3% of GDP. Now, when you put it in those terms, it's really rather dramatic, because what that means is that over a period of slightly more than a decade, the German economy gained a stimulus through exports to China of about 25 to, to 3%. And a 2.5% stimulus is a big deal. Like It's like all of Pentagon spending in the US. And m- imagine that suddenly arriving on the scene and coming from China to Germany. The story gets really dramatic, however, when you look at the individual corporate level, because taking a big economy as a whole, most of it is services, like restaurants. It doesn't show up in global trade. You're not really capturing the interdependence. Where the politics, the political economy gets really hard is when you look at the the corporate level. And there, some of the numbers are really quite dramatic. So take the turnover of the German car makers, BMW, Daimler, Volkswagen. For BMW, the China turnover share is 31%. For Daimler, it's 32%. For Volkswagen, it's 37%. So more than a third of Volkswagen's total global business is China. If you go down the list, if you look at Adidas, it's 21% for Adidas globally. For BASF, Germany's you know, the largest chemicals, heavy chemicals company in the world, the share is 15%. For Siemens, it's 13%. So now, all of a sudden, we're not talking 1% or 2% of GDP. We're talking the bulk of their business, right? Or the dynamic bit of their business as well that's driving. And so the third element of this is in the last two or three months, Siemens, BASF, VW have all essentially made clear that they don't have a plan without China. So it's not just, as it were, the old growth of the 90s and the 2000s. And it's not just the fact that corporate Germany is heavily in the China market. Corporate Germany's future strategies continue to hinge on China right now. And that, I think, is really what sets German industry, and it really are talking about industry here, somewhat apart from Virtually all of the other players in the world. Siemens, just in the last couple of weeks, has revealed the fact that it has a huge China expansion plan because it doesn't think a 13% turnover share is large enough. BASF has has made a huge investment in China and is reducing its footprint in Europe because the energy costs are too high in favor of China, and VW does not have an EV plan without China.
0: So I want to shift now to the energy crisis. You know the continent is facing this shortage of natural gas which is leading to um, a shortage of heat and uh, electricity. And, you know, Germany, after a bunch of teeth gnashing, managed to come up with an agreement to keep its three remaining nuclear power plants, which were scheduled to close at the end of this year, open for another few months until the middle of March, which would get through most of the cold months here. The big holdup here was the Green Party, which is part of Schultz's government. They were resisting any change to the law that would have closed those nuclear power plants, even though nuclear energy is a kind of carbon neutral energy source and doesn't make climate change any worse, which is a big green priority. So I was hoping you could clarify the psychological relationship of the German Greens, which are the most powerful Green Party in the world. To nuclear energy.
2: You're right. It absolutely is a matter of identity for the Greens. I mean, they were an anti-nuclear party well before they were a climate party. The the Greens simply articulate what is a highly effective critique of nuclear power as as a power option. I mean, it's it's dangerous. There's no long-term solution for it. Uh, We saw in Chernobyl how dangerous it could be. It requires a national security apparatus to maintain it. It's commercially non-viable because the risks are gigantic and there is no long-term solution for the spent um, uh, reactor rods. And so it's a bad energy option. And the British who are currently trying to build a a modern reactor are discovering how bad it is. I mean, it's ridiculously more expensive than the renewable energy options um, that are out there right now. And um, furthermore, this position was formulated, of course, against the backdrop in the early eighties, not just of concerns about nuclear power, but also about atomic warfare, right? So the two things were to a degree elided in the minds of the Green Party at the time, because you know, the party emerges you know through a double nuclear threat. One is the the threat of nuclear reactors at home, pushed by German industry with the backing of the German state at the time. Both the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats. So, this is why you had to have a new party, because everyone was in on this. The other threat was the escalation of the Cold War, and both of them were nuclear. And so, this provided an obvious kind of cinch between two elements. The peace movement and the anti nuclear movement went hand in hand. Furthermore, by the late 1990s, a societal consensus had been built around that in in Germany. This is not some fly by night thing. You don't shut an atomic reactor program down quickly. There was a consensus built around this so that the energy companies in Germany bought in on this because once they sat down and actually looked at the numbers, it didn't make that much sense to them either. Certainly not to invest in new power. And then to cap it all off, you know, after Fukushima, Merkel of the Christian Democrats decided to overturn that closure program and speed it up independently of the greens who were in opposition at the time and ruptured the social coalition that had been built by the red green you know very responsibly articulated politics of building a consensus around this and speeded it up and in the process crushed the balance sheets of several german power generators and now what happens along computing and starts a, you know an insane war and we're in an energy crisis and people are saying oh you silly greens you're so attached you know you're so attached to this agenda item of yours no i mean the world has gone mad right in a sense and and people who had built a very powerful and now totally hegemonic like position, which is that this is really not the solution for um the energy transition in Europe. Right? No there are there are very few countries making new bets on atomic power that don't have like twisted energy politics. The Poles, for instance, are considering it, but like what kind of a surprise is that? Um are suddenly faced with this demand to You know, undo the carefully worked out timetable that was adjusted after Merkel made her capricious decision in 2011 to shift her party's position. And all of a sudden, they're in the dock as the people who don't understand the necessity of the moment. When in fact, if you'd asked six to months ago, none of the German electricity utilities would have said this makes any sense.
0: I want to go back to the the auto industry. Obviously, we we talked about that in the context of China and uh, the auto industry is the center of the German economy. But from what I can tell, it seems to be falling behind in terms of developing electric cars. Does this mean the German auto industry is screwed in some fundamental way? And, and if the German car industry fades, what does that mean for the German economy as a whole? Yeah, I mean, the,
2: again, it's like this, like, how important is it? It's really an interesting exercise. So if you, if you ask, like, what share of German GDP um, the car industry accounts for, it's about 4%. So, you know, either a lot or a little, depending on how you look at it, right? So, to have an auto industry that accounts for 4% of GDP right now is rather unusual amongst societies as rich as Germany is, right? Because we've just gotten so good at making cars, they've gotten cheaper. And so they get squeezed as a share of GDP relative to other things that we aren't as good at making as cars. So that's just this natural. It's a bit like agriculture. You know, the sh- share of agriculture in rich country GDPs is one or two percent. Do we have any less food than we used to when agriculture had a share of thirty or forty percent? Clearly not, right? We have more. It's just that it's got we've gotten so good at doing it that it, it gets cheap, and so it shrinks as a share. Um, in terms of employment, it's even smaller. Direct employment in the industry is less than a million people. The crucial thing about it is that they produce spin-off effects. They're technologically dynamic. They're big exporters. So in all of those respects, they punch above their weight. They are also incredibly symbolic of a certain sort of vision of what German economic success amounts to, right? You're right, compared to the glamour of Tesla, which is just this, you know, sort of starved out of nowhere, you know, make yourself up as a car manufacturing entity, um, on the one hand, and then the kind of utility nature of Chinese electric mobility where we don't even know the names and they don't go for brand value in certainly the Western sense they're doing cheap. the classic car manufacturers are sort of in the middle but I think it's important to emphasize that it's not just the Germans that have this problem. So you know the biggest car maker in the world for a long time was after all Japanese Toyota and the Japanese are behind the the Germans even in EV mobility and that's odd right because Toyota made a play on the Prius which is the the you know the original hybrid and has kind of gotten stuck in that model and is is finding it really hard to shift to full ev operation
0: so finally to end with a question about schultz um he he clearly styled himself especially during the election campaign as an inheritor of merkels political style in the general sense but if anything even as a kind of improvement on her uh you know with even more ambitious plans to remake germany um do you think he's proven up to the task adam i mean does it look like schultz's government is a going to be a long-lived project or does it seem kind of like a a kind of a short-lived thing
2: i mean i think the short answer is that it's been it's been a disappointing experience so far the the schultz chancellorship I don't know that expectations were that high. It hasn't come as a complete surprise that he has been the relatively grey for long periods of time, absent figure. But personalities aside, I think the crucial thing to understand about German politics is it's coalitional, right? Who governs is dictated by which parties can form alliances with each other. And when you ask is this going to be a short lived experiment, the question is, well, you might think so, except what are these what is the alternative? I mean, the Greens cannot aspire to, reasonably aspire to winning the kind of percentage of the vote which will enable them to govern just with the SPD or just with the Liberals. And barring that, this three-way coalition is the only game in town. And with a certain sort of logic, you know, in in the words that each one of them represents a certain faction of German society and a certain vision. And so whether Schultz is part chancellor or not, um, that does seem to be the future.
0: Okay, well, I do think we need to leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news, and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at ones and twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
1: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast. Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound, and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window, and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power
0: plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
1: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
0: You wanna make it tasteful, you wanna make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
1: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.